So we're going to, oh, my name's Jordan Adams, by the way, I'm the, I'm the college pastor here. Um, yeah, anyway, so we're going to continue in the book of Mark. So flip open to, to Mark 12 if you got your Bible or you got an app on your phone. We'd love for you to, to kind of follow along with us. We're also, we'll have some of the verses on the screen. And, and the book of Mark flies, right? This thing has been clicking off at a fast pace, and, and you see a lot of immediately as you go through the book, and it, it kind of stays at this, this big picture look at Jesus' ministry in the, in the first chapter of the book alone, right? So Jesus starts his ministry, he gets baptized, he goes out into the wilderness, he calls his disciples, and he heals a bunch of people. That's in one chapter, right? So we've been at this, this flyover pace, but then the book of Mark is moving towards its climax of Holy Week, and, and so what's going to happen is we're now going to, we're going to zoom in and we're going to focus really specifically. And essentially today we have just a few words of Jesus, but they're actually his words. We have them recorded and he's going to, he's going to zoom in and focus in. And this is actually where we're at. We, so we, we just celebrated Easter. We went through Holy Week, right? So our stories today, we're on Tuesday of Holy Week. So it's Tuesday. Jesus knows he's going to be hanging on a cross on Friday. And we get to see what he was doing. And I don't know about you, but if I know that I got a couple days to live, I, I don't know. I'm going to be spending time with my family. I'm maybe going to eat a lot of steak. But I'm not going to be like preaching a sermon. And I'm certainly not going to be hanging out with the dudes that I know are about to kill me. But what is Jesus doing? He's trying to teach. He's trying to give last words to guys that are actually the ones that are about to rebel against him. And even though they're, they're stern words, I, I just see his compassion in that. Like, who does that? And so we're, we're zooming in on this conversation of Jesus in Mark 12. We're gonna look at two stories this morning, and they're both stories about religious leaders who experience the authority of Jesus Christ, and instead of falling on their face before him, they reject him. And we're actually more like them than we want to think. All right, so that's where we're going this morning. So Mark 12, 1 through 7. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Okay, so this is, this is the story that we have, right? We have a landowner that symbolizes God. And then we have these, these farmers that are farming the land in the landowner's place, which is a pretty common practice at this time, right? So the landowner travels or he, he goes to farmland elsewhere and he, he leaves the farm to some people that he thinks are he can trust with this land. And they sign this contract saying, hey, you guys are going to farm the land. You're going to get a cut of the profits and I'm going to come and I'm going to get the rest of it. And so the, the farmers are the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees. 
And then, so, so the, the landowner leaves and, and the farmers are, are sort of in, kind of in his place, farming the land for him. And it comes harvest time and he goes to get his crops and he sends a servant to, to pick up his crops for him. And over and over again, these farmers reject the servants of the landowner. Some they beat up, some they kill. And the servants of the landowners represent the prophets throughout the history of Israel that, that God sent to his people to try and, and tell them how they should be living. And again and again, the religious leaders reject the prophets of God until finally, and you guys, you guys know who this symbolizes, Jesus himself, the landowner says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they're not going to reject my son. Now, some of the parables that Jesus tells are they're a little hard to follow, right? And, and people, it, it like completely goes over their head and, and people miss it and there's, there's some meanings that you really have to dig out. But, but in this story, nobody would have missed the meaning. So even in the text, it, it says that the, the Pharisees knew that, that he was calling them out. And where are they? They're in the temple. So Jesus walks in to the people that the Pharisees are trying to manipulate and trying to control for their own power, and he calls them out in front of them, and everybody knows exactly what's going on. Nobody would have been confused about what's happening. And this story, it symbolizes this cycle that plays out throughout the Old Testament and really throughout all of human history. And, and here's the, the story, the overarching narrative. It's that God makes a promise a covenant with his people. And, and his people are really excited about it and they're bought in on it for like two seconds. And then everyone loses their minds and forgets how good God is and they just do their own thing. That's the story of the Old Testament again and again. That's the story of what human beings are like, that God is faithful to his promises and we reject him and his promises. And so, so the things I, I wanna point out, the things I want you to see, I want you to see the patient pursuit of God the patient pursuit of God, and the way his people reject him. The patient pursuit of God and the way that his people reject him. So first, the, the patient pursuit of God. Okay, so I don't know about you guys, but if I'm a landowner and I send a servant to pick up the crops that, that I'm due, and the farmer's taking care of my land, hit him over the head with a club, my reaction is not going to be, hmm, I think I'll send another servant. My reaction is I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to get those landowners kicked out quickly, right? But what happens in the story again and again and again, the landowner sends servant after servant hoping that this one time maybe the farmers will respond the way that they're supposed to. That is the patience of God. That throughout history, he has been patient as human beings have repeatedly rejected him and he keeps sending people, calling his people back to himself. And look, that's not just in history, that's, that's you, right? Like, God has been remarkably patient with you and your impatience. As you're wishing your kids were different and freaking out on them, what's God doing in that moment? He sees you in that sin and he's not treating you the way that you're treating your kids, He's being patient with you and your impatience. As you're holding bitterness against those people that you're frustrated by, God is not holding infinitely worse sin against you. He's not holding it against you. He's a patient God. So I showed sheep growing up. 
Some of you, that's like a normal sentence. Some of you are very confused. <laughs> I understand that I'm in a city, all right, and I'm, I'm telling you a lot about myself. So let me tell you what showing sheep is. You, you take a sheep, and you hold it by the head, and then you walk it real fancy, okay? Like you're walking fancy, the sheep is walking fancy, and you're kind of doing this, and you're like looking at the judge. Okay, then you walk it around in a circle while a judge looks at you walking fancy and your sheep walking fancy, which you can't actually teach a sheep to walk fancy. And then you stop and then you put your leg out like this and you try and convince the sheep to push against your leg because it's like flexing its muscles. And then this judge comes and like feels every part of the sheep, including the rear end. And the whole thing is weird. And then there's people that watch this happen and they, then they clap at the end of it. Okay, so that's showing sheep. I, I remember I said that sentence to a buddy of mine that lived in Cleveland, and he literally just laughed for about five minutes. He like pulled somebody over, like, listen to this. He walks him around in a circle. You know, he slept. Anyway, so I showed sheep growing up. So we had these sheep. We lived in a town, but we had these sheep out on a farm. And there, there was this one ewe, okay, translation, female sheep. There was this one ewe, and her name was Kurt. Because I was seven years old and I thought that was a good name for a female sheep. <laughs> and Kurt was dumb, like all sheep. And my family hates it when I say that because they're sheep apologists. But look, <laughs> sheep are stupid. And, and so about four or five times a week, we would drive out and there would be Kurt with her head stuck in a fence. Because this is what would happen, is she would be in a pasture, a perfectly green pasture, and then she would see this one random weed on the other side of the fence, and she would stick her head through the fence and try and eat that weed, and then she couldn't get out. And so this is what we did, like multiple times a week, is I'd walk over with my dad, and my dad would go up, and he'd try and kind of pull the fence apart. And during this process, Kurt is trying to butt us with her head, like she is trying to hurt me, okay? So he'd pull the fence apart and he'd just kind of slowly like pull her out of the fence and let her back into the pasture, okay? And this just happened over and over and over again. That's a picture of what our relationship with God is like. God is the shepherd who patiently helps his sheep and we're the sheep that over and over again think that sin is a good idea and it's gonna be fun. And we get our heads caught in that fence. We get stuck in sin and we can't get out of it. And God, instead of just letting us stay there, walks over and he helps us out of the same stuff over and over again. Now, here's the thing. That's a pretty flattering description of who God is. It's not a very flattering description of who you are. And, and, and we take issue with that, right? Like, like in our hearts, we don't like that idea. We... We don't want to be weak and helpless. But here's the thing. Part of recognizing the greatness of God is recognizing your inadequacy in comparison. And part of what authentic Christianity means is accepting that picture of yourself. Because if you're constantly trying to assert your own authority, your own ability to be good without him, you're going to end up rejecting his help. You're going to be like that sheep trying to but the, the shepherd, right? So in, in this story, back to the story, right? I want you to notice how violently Jesus describes the Pharisees in this story. And, and it's fair, right? Because they, the, the religious leaders did kill multiple uh, people, 
God's prophets that they rejected, but he describes them violently. Now, would other people have described the Pharisees like this? No. These guys were the pastors. They were the morally upright guys. They were, they were the good guys. But, but here's the thing, is they ended up committing the ultimate sin. They killed the Son of God. And what led them to that ultimate sin? It wasn't that they wanted to go do whatever they wanted, live however they wanted, that they wanted to be anti-religious. What led them to that ultimate sin? They wanted to be good. They wanted to be good on their own strength. They didn't want to be helpless and weak. They wanted to be capable and they wanted to be strong. And at the end of the day, they didn't want to be the sheep. They wanted to be the shepherd. And in their insistence on relying on their own morality, they rejected the grace of God. In other words, any dependence on your own morality is a rejection of God. The default condition of the human heart is not to follow God, it's to try to be God. And that's exactly what a lot of us in this room are doing. Like this is where the Pharisees would have sat is in the church service. How do you picture yourself and how do you want others to picture you as a Christian? As weak and in need of God's help or as strong and capable on your own? Guys, we're all playing this game, right? Where we, you present this image of yourself. This, this capable, put together image because you're trying to convince everyone else in this room and everyone in your life that you're a decent human being. Or maybe for you, it's you're trying to convince God that you're a decent human being. Or maybe you're trying to convince you that you're really not that bad, that you're actually decent. But here's the problem with that is that you can do that entirely without Jesus. Like, like you can be a moral person without knowing God. And, and if that's your strategy, you've just produced a Christless Christianity. And I'm afraid that we don't know the difference between being good people and being Christians. I ask that question of college students all the time. What's the difference between being a good person and being a Christian? And a lot of us don't know. I didn't know for a long time. I was told that they were the same thing. We, we've essentially equated the two, but here's the problem with that. You aren't good the Bible says that, that you and I, that we're corrupted to the core, but when you, when you start to believe your own press, eventually you'll try to become your own savior. And, and inevitably that will mean you will reject Jesus as your savior. And a lot of us have been around this thing, this church thing long enough to know that we're not supposed to say that we're saved by good works, right? We know not to say that. But everything in our life and everything in our heart would say otherwise because at the end of the day, we don't really want him to save us. We want to save ourselves. And so we reject him with our goodness. So I want to give you some symptoms of this. Some symptoms of Christless Christianity. But, but before I do that, I want, to, I want to warn you, and this is coming from an awareness of this in my own heart, okay? Pride blinds you. So if, if you're proud, you're often the last person to know that you're proud. And, and, and often we get mad at proud people and we get sick of them, right? Why? 
because it offends our pride, <laughs> you know, because we want to be that person. We don't want them to be that person. So, so here's the deal. If you're, if you're quick to kind of reject this, that's not me. Just be careful, all right? So some symptoms of Christless Christianity. The way you respond to sin. The way you respond to sin. There's a few ways that you can respond to sin. First, you can fake it. You can pretend like sin like, isn't really there. Or you can confess in theory. You know what I'm talking about? Like where you know it's like the Christian answer to say like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner. Nobody's perfect. That kind of stuff. Or, or you can say like, sometimes I get frustrated as opposed to I screamed at my kids on the car right here. You can minimize sin. It's not really that bad. It, it's, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I'm not actually cheating on my wife. It's just a text. It's just an image. Or, you know, it's just beer. Like, yeah, we're supposed to obey authorities, Romans 13. I get that. But like, I don't know. This doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Why does God forbid this? It's just partying. It's not that big of a deal. Or how about this? Guilt and shame. Some of you operate under this as like the way to fight sin. Like you think this is the Christian perspective. This is the one that, that I fall into consistently. Guilt and shame. You sit in shame of sin and you resolve to do better the next time. And so essentially your strategy is this. I'm going to feel really bad about this. Like so bad that I'm going to be able to remember how bad it was and then I'm never going to do it again and I'm going to make a promise to myself. I'm going to promise God that, that I'll never go back there again. Okay, one, how's that working for you? Like, is that a, like, has that gone well for you? It, that doesn't go well for me. That doesn't work. And secondly, that's entirely dependent on you. It's not dependent on Jesus. Symptom two, the way that you, that you look at other people. So, so if your heart is tempted to judge versus relate to people, or maybe you have this us versus them mentality. There's us Christians over here, this Christian subculture thing that we're doing. And then there's those people out there who aren't quite as moral as we are. And if I can just stay insulated and isolated from that group, then I'm going to be okay because I'm going to kind of hide myself from sin, not realizing that the origins of sin is your own heart. Primarily, it's not out there. Or how about this, external, not internal Christianity? Is, and, and I know this is just, this isn't as practical. It's hard to get practical with this, but it's so important. It, is Christianity something that you do, or is it someone that you love? Like, is it a series of events? Is it a morality system? Or is it, is it something that's captured your heart, something that you can't walk away from because you've seen the beauty of Jesus Christ and he's all you know and he's all that you want in life? Which one is it? So those are the symptoms of the sickness of Christless Christianity. And you have to see that the things that Christians have most traditionally been afraid of, kind of the world, kind of the, the big sins, might not be the most terrifying thing at all. It might actually be your own goodness. Your morality, your upbringing, your commitment to purity in your life. You, you being here at church this morning might be the very means by which you've rejected God. And, and the reason I care about this is because that's my story. I spent my whole life calling myself a Christian. And I thought what that meant was being a put together good person. So I either hit it or I felt like super discouraged about who I really was. And, and I didn't know 
that in the process of my goodness, I was rejecting the person that I was trying to follow. And I want to tell you that there's a better way, there's another way. And I also want to warn you not to mistake his patience with you for his endorsement of what you're doing. So eventually, the landowner had had enough, and he showed up, and he throws out the wicked tenants, and he rents it out to new people. Romans 2, 4 says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Does his kindness lead you to repentance or to rejection? So I can tell you what it led the religious leaders to. That's our second story. All right, our second story, 12 verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? It's a, it's a common coin at the time, about a day's uh, labor worth. They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Okay, so back up. Jesus just got done saying to them, hey, by the way, you guys have killed like every prophet that I've sent to you and you're about to kill me. And then they go, okay, can we talk about taxes? That is like the worst change in subject I've ever heard. <laughs> and, and they're avoiding the hard conversation, right? And they're trying to put the, I don't know, they're, they're trying to put the pressure back on Jesus. It's been piling up on them. They're like, all right, we're going to switch this up. We're going to come back at him. We're going to get him with this one. So, so here's, here's where they're going with this, is there was this debate about taxes at this time. Shocking. I know you guys don't understand that. Um, and the Herodians were people that were pro-Rome and they were pro-taxes. So these taxes were the money that the Jews were obligated to pay to Rome and these Herodians were, were pro-taxes. And then you had the Pharisees who, because of some religious hesitations and because they just didn't want to give their money to Rome, they were super anti-tax. So these guys, they didn't like each other. They had arguments a lot about this. And so right away, this story is crazy, right? When these people would have seen Herodians and Pharisees together, kind of making this plan together, like th this story starts out like a joke, right? This is like one of those, like a Christian, a rabbi, a Republican, and a Democrat walk into a bar. Like that's what this sounds like. They're against each other, but they're for one thing. They both hate Jesus, and they want to figure out how to trap him. And so here's this plan that they come up with, is they're going to ask Jesus about taxes. And if Jesus says, yeah, okay, you guys should, should pay your taxes, then the Jews are going to get the religious people all riled up and, and say, look, he's pro-Roman, he's, he's not really with us. And if he says, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes, then the Herodians are going to call him a revolutionary. They're going to say he doesn't support Rome, and they're going to try and get the Romans to, to kick him out. So he's either going to be in trouble either way, and they think that they are so smart. You guys remember Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, that show? And the first question is like, you know, the easiest thing in the world. It's like, what's two plus three? It's five, Ian. I got gotcha. you. 
Yeah. Um, and, and then you get to the million dollar question, it's essentially impossible. So these guys think that they have a million dollar question for Jesus, but they forget that God is sitting in the chair across from them. It's not a good plan to try and trick God. It's not gonna go well for you. And so Jesus gives them this response. He picks up a coin that they're talking about and he says, whose inscription and likeness is on this? And they're like, it's Caesar's. And he says this, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. He made it, he can have it back, that's fine. Pay your taxes, obey your authorities. By the way, that's applicable for us too. Pay your taxes, obey your authorities. But then he says this, give to God what is God's. Okay, what's he saying here? So he just pulled out this coin with literally like the face of Caesar was imprinted on it. So Caesar's image was on it. So it was clear whose coin it was. So do they have a coin that has like a picture of God on it? No, what's he saying? He's saying, who has God stamped his image on? You. You are the image bearers of God. And he's saying, Caesar can have his coins. I want you. I want all of you. So there's a couple implications I want to point out about us being in the image of God. The first one is, some of you feel, you feel worthless, you feel discouraged, you feel frustrated with who you are, and here's what you need to see. You are more valuable than you could ever imagine. And it's inherent value. You, you can't shake it. That can't be taken from you because God has stamped his impression on you. He said, this is the pinnacle of my creation. And guess what? He pursues you relentlessly. That story of God over and over again, coming after his people when they consistently reject him. Like, that's you. You're an image bearer. Some of you, like, you're just, you're exhausted. And it's because you're a workaholic. And you have personalities where, where you're constantly, incessantly working. You, you can't rest. Okay, you, you don't know why. Or, or you have bosses that demand efficiency or productivity. Here's that idea that human beings are worth what they can produce. You're being treated like a machine, but you're an image bearer. Which means that you have value simply because of who you are, not because of what you can do. Not because of what you can create. So that's the first implication. Here's the second implication. God owns you. That one doesn't sit quite as well. God owns you. When he sees you, he says, mine. You're his. To do whatever he wants with, the same way that a painting is the, the property of the painter, right? Right? And how you feel about that truth will tell you a lot about what you think about God. If that terrifies you, if that freaks you out, then, then you're thinking of God as an abusive authority. If that sort of makes you mad, if, if you don't like that, then it's probably because you want to be your own authority in your life. You guys know that song, You Can Have It All, Lord? Some of you do, some of you might not. I, I love it, so I keep asking Isaac to play it. We're gonna play it after this. And, 
And so it goes like this. The main line is, you can have it all, Lord, every part of my world. And we love it, right? Like, we're going to sing along to that thing. We're going to raise our hands. We're, you know, we're going to feel it in that moment. You can have it all, Jesus. It's all for you. Okay, can you have your career? I want you to give up career advancement so that you can move with a church plant. I want you to give away your entire bonus. I I want you to sacrifice position in your company so that you don't climb over other people on the way, but you treat them like image bearers. I want you to give up your career to be a parent. You can have it all, Lord. Not so confident anymore. Right? You, you can have it all, Jesus. You can have everything. Okay, what about your money? So Troy Nesbitt is a dude that's spoken here a couple times. He oversees our network. And if you've heard him speak, you've kind of learned that he's a little bit crazy. He, he says and does things that other people aren't willing to do. And that's what makes him an amazing leader. I love him to death. This is one thing Troy did in a sermon one time. I was sitting in the audience for this one. Troy walks on stage, he's gonna talk about money and he puts this link to a website on the screen and he says, guys, this is something new that our church is doing. We've put up this website where you can go in and you can search by name and you can figure out how much each of you have given. <laughs> and I, like, I panicked, but then I realized like, this is a golden moment. I can't miss what other people are doing around me. And so I looked around and people were losing it. Like some people were mad. They were starting to get up and walk out. The dude in front of me was Googling it. Like he was already like trying to look at what people were given. Like people were straight stressed. Now he let it sit there for a minute and then said, of course, we're not actually going to do this. This is a fake website. Okay, don't worry. Like that didn't actually happen. We're not doing that to you. But his point got, got across, right? Which was this is we like to think of ourselves as generous people, But then when there's a threat of other people being able to see how much we're actually giving, it gets a little freaky, right? You know that God can see what you give, right? But we fall into that. You fall into thinking you can just kind of get away with it, that you can be your own authority. But you can have it all, God, right? What about about your social image? God wants you to share your gospel, the gospel with your neighbors. Okay, but that's gonna be awkward. Okay? Isn't it worth it? But I struggle with that. Like, I'm a pastor, and I, I haven't done a good job of sharing the gospel with my neighbors. Because it's weird to me. Like, I kind of do it for a living, and it's still hard. And, and we're going to be tempted to do that thing that we do as Christians where we sort of hear this, and we either assent to it, like, yeah, that's a good idea, like, we should do that stuff, or you kind of get mad about it. But either way, we're going to be tempted to leave here and not really change anything. Why? Because at the end of the day, the answer to the question is no, he can't have it all. Because you and I don't want him to be the Lord of our life. We want to do it on our own. And in that, we're just like the farmers and just like the Pharisees. And we need to own up to the fact that our religiosity and our refusal to give him everything is participation in the killing of the king. We are culpable in the death of Jesus the same way that they were. But look back at verse 10. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Okay, the stone that the builders rejected has become 
the cornerstone. So a cornerstone was the foundation of the building. It was, it, it was the most important piece of a building, and, and the builders would look over a stone, and they would make sure that it was the perfect size, that there was no deformities in it, that it was perfectly shaped, and then they would use it as, they would choose one as the cornerstone. So in this analogy, we're the builders, and, and ourselves and for thousands of years, human beings have been investigating the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, and we've been rejecting it. We've been saying that's not what we're looking for. That's not the foundation that we want to stand on. We often try and put ourselves in as the cornerstone. And that rejection should put us in a place where we never get to be with God again. But do you understand that Jesus used your rejection of him as the means by which he would save you? Like our sin put us in the crowds chanting, crucify him, kill him. And what does Jesus say? He says, okay, you can do that. And he manipulates your rejection of him into your salvation. The rejected cornerstone becomes the cornerstone. Jesus is the rejected son. He's the rejected stone. And that has always been the plan. He knew that you and I would never give it all to him. So he gave it all for you. So that now, if you trust him, if you say, I know I'm not perfect in this, I know I'm gonna continue to reject you, but I want you, I wanna trust you, I don't wanna keep rejecting you, he will never reject you. He will never throw you out. That's the the kindness and the patience of God. That on a Tuesday, he would engage with people who would kill him on a Friday. And, And he hangs on that cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He doesn't hold it against them. He offers them mercy. That was the plan all along. And that plan was to melt your heart of rebellion and to prove to you that he is good and that he can be trusted. And when it's hard to follow him and when he asks you for something, it's not for your detriment, but for your good. Because if a God would die on a cross for you, if he would take your rejection and turn it into salvation, isn't he going to be good to you forever? Isn't that his character to be a good authority in your life? Let his kindness lead you to repentance and not to rejection. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Like I over and over again have rejected you with my heart, with my words, with my life. And you over and over again, simply because I have faith, you over and over again have brought me back. You just kept pursuing me. You kept chasing me down, even when I've been running away. And you've done that for every single person in this room. And so I pray, God, would we be a church that responds in repentance and faith, that, that believes that, that you can take our sins from us and that we don't have to live the way that we've always lived and kind of pushing you off, but we can start to actually follow you now because of what you've done. Would we respond to you in repentance and not rejection? I'm sorry, Jesus, for how I haven't led well in that. But thank you that I don't lead this church, that 
that you do, that you're our shepherd and you take care of us. You're dumb sheep, (laughs) but sheep that you love and that you care for. Yeah, thank you. Amen.